Good morning. Happy to be back in the pulpit today, um, even in this first Sunday of the new year. Um, so if you have your Bibles, if you'd please turn to Psalm 3. Did you expect anything less? Well, we've come to the first Sunday of 2022, and I don't know about you, but I'm sure hoping that this year turns out much better than that 2020 vision I heard about a couple years ago. That year left me uh, needing a new prescription. And I want to warn you in advance that this particular sermon of mine may have a little bit less humor than you're used to when I'm communicating. My son Jacob is in the sound booth, and he has threatened to put my microphone on mute if there are any corny dad jokes. Got me covered back there? (laughs) You all will actually appreciate that. Well, when Pastor Rich asked me to preach, after I preached on Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 the last few years, I thought, well, let's go with Psalm 3. It's a, I, don't, I don't have to spend a lot of time uh, figuring out a topic or text, and uh, I, I really enjoy this psalm as well. It's uh, known as somewhat of a morning hymn, a morning prayer, and you'll see why as we get into it. It's no secret if you've had any talk with me at length that you know that I love the psalms. Just love the way they cover the broad range of human emotions from mountaintop experiences, joy, jubilation, to sorrow and just utter despair. And I think that's appropriate because we experience all of those things in our lives at different times, sometimes in the same week. And I'd be remiss, I think, if I did not encourage all of us, whether you're joining online or here present, um, as we start this new year, just to encourage each of you, as I encourage myself as well, to spend time with God each day, uh, reading the Bible and spending some time in prayer, um, making that a commitment. And I've made it a habit the last few years to start each day by actually reading aloud a psalm and kind of offering that to God as a prayer. I think that's a pattern we see throughout church history, um, whether it's you know, monastics or whether it's um, people just trying to be more faithful to God and keeping set times of prayer, of using the Psalms as, as a prayer, um, as prayers to God. And obviously, each Psalm in our Bible is a distinct composition, but if you were to read starting at Psalm 1 and, and moving on through 150, you would see, as I discussed a couple years ago in a sermon, Psalm 1 starts as kind of this path of blessing, this path of wisdom. Psalm 2 shows the establishment of God's anointed king where he sets his king upon his holy hill of Zion. But Psalm 3 is going to take a different turn here. Psalm 3 is going to introduce us to a particular type of song that is actually probably the most common. And I think some estimates had up to 70 psalms are of this particular type. And that is what's known as the lament. Now, in a lament, we see the psalmist laying out a distressing situation, often dangerous, dire circumstances before the Lord and asking the Lord for deliverance. Sometimes these laments even go as far as to utter complaints against God. 
that the psalmist looks and he sees that the righteous people are suffering and the wicked people are prospering, and that's not the way it's supposed to be, and, and go as far as to offer a complaint to God. With that in mind, would you stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word from Psalm 3? Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we get into your word here in Psalm 3, in this lament that is offered, we pray that you would help us to understand the battle that is before us and to make use use of the means of grace, of prayer, of bringing our concerns to you. We pray that you would use the preaching of your word to encourage your people to love and good works. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, we've moved now in the calendar from the magic of Christmas to the expectation of a new year, as I mentioned, wondering if 2022 is truly going to be the year in which our lives will get back to normal, whatever that means, and whether we can move beyond the cloud of COVID and its dark shadow that it has cast. I truly hope in the last week, all of us, I think, probably have experienced a sense of joy during this Christmas season as Christians, as we remembered how God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh and become human, born as a baby in Bethlehem, that He might save us from our sins and give us eternal life. And our Christmas carols and our Scripture readings have reminded us of the song of the angels, how they said, "'Glory to God in the highest!' And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. We've remembered the prophecies from of old from Isaiah about peace. How Isaiah foretold that for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And if there's any doubt, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we are right to have this confident expectation, this hope, that the Messiah has come to bring peace on earth as his kingdom is established. But at the risk of being the Grinch who stole your Christmas peace and joy, in preparation for the new year, I want to transition a little bit today from peace on earth to warfare. 
So I've entitled this sermon, Prepare for Battle. As we get into the psalm in the first two verses, what we see is that our passage here begins with the psalmist crying out to Lord, to the Lord about a very desperate situation in which he finds himself. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. They're even mocking his faith. And the title of this psalm provides some additional context for us, linking this to the rebellion of Absalom. There's quite a substantial narrative about this chapter in the life of David in 2 Samuel. It lasts from chapters 15 all the way through 19, and I mean, peace isn't eventually established again until the end of chapter 20, I believe. So Absalom, this charismatic and charming son of King David, he works cunningly to draw the hearts of the people to himself in disloyalty to the king. He has his fellow conspirators to declare him king in Hebron. So David David is forced to flee for his life from the capital in Jerusalem. If you read about that, it's a moment of deep sadness for David and those who are with him. They're left in a vulnerable position. There's weeping. David must leave the Ark of the Covenant, the dwelling place of God, and flee for refuge to a barren wilderness. They're left in that vulnerable position because they have their wives and their little ones with them. I'm reminded of the scene in the two towers where King Theoden leads the people of Rohan to flee to Helm's Deep through the vulnerable mountain pass with the women and children. And there, Saruman decides to attack with his orcs when they are in a vulnerable state. That's the situation. That's the desperate situation in which David finds himself in this psalm. We can get a sense of the depth of despair by the repetition of the word many. It's many foes. It's many that are rising against him. Many are saying of his soul. This is no solitary opponent here. He is surrounded. Now, We may not be able to fully relate to this experience of David as the warrior, as the king fleeing, being surrounded by enemies that are seeking to kill us, like David here. But nonetheless, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are in a war, and there are numerous enemies out there to destroy you. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. As we approach the new year of walking together with Jesus, though, I I want to exhort you this morning to prepare for battle. We have to have the realization of the enemies that are out there. Who are these enemies that we must acknowledge and defend against? Well, theologians over the centuries have seen the enemies of, of the Christian to be the world, the flesh, and the devil. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be sober-minded and be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking seeking whom he may destroy and devour. It was the demon Satan, was it not, who tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God in the garden, plunging mankind into sin and bringing a curse. He continues to, today, his efforts to destroy humans made in the image of God. Revelation, you will hear him described as a dragon who not only accuses the brethren, but makes war and fury upon the saints, upon the church of Jesus Christ. 
Scripturally, we need only look at the faithful life of the servant of God, Job, to see how much hell and fury Satan can unleash against one man. And if Satan were not strong enough an adversary, there are countless hordes of demons allied with him who rage against the saints. Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians 6. Paul talks a lot about spiritual warfare and says that, you know, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood in the ultimate sense. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A lot of descriptors in there. These ranks of demons may surely lead us to exclaim with the psalmist, many are my foes. The second enemy that we must confront is the world. And I'm not talking about the earth, um, the created realm, the realm of nature. I'm referring to the system in this present age in which mankind lives in opposition to God and his laws. In this, they image and, and imitate Satan instead of imaging God as we were created to do. 1 John 3, 8 makes this connection between the devil, the demonic, and sin, those who rebel against God. It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent has been ongoing since the fall, continues to this day. And the third enemy, though, that we have to acknowledge hits a little closer to home. I might call it the enemy within the gates. And I'm speaking of the flesh, those sinful tendencies that remain even in the redeemed, those things that we have to struggle against. Again, the apostle Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 5 when talking about the spirit. But he says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And he talks a little bit about what these works of the flesh are, how, they mani- how this flesh, how these sin- sinful tendencies manifest themselves. He says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Oh, Paul, you're hitting a little bit close to home there. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's like, Paul, if you, if you didn't have enough there, things like these. Complete the list. The things that we deal with that we know are not showing love for God and love for our neighbor. So these are the enemies that we must face as we're seeking to live for God. But like the psalmist Despite the fact that many are our enemies, um, let's turn to the recollection of the psalmist. In verses 3 through 6, we see David is actually recalling the past works of the Lord on his behalf to give him confidence in this current trial. Surrounded by enemies that would seek to take his life, the psalmist is reflecting upon the gracious character of God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory, and the lifter of my head. Rather than focusing on our enemies, we must turn to the Lord in times of distress. And the psalmist is using these three images here to meditate upon for his trust. First of all, he calls God a shield. We're not talking about a little battle shield that may be helpful if somebody's trying to 
stab you with a sword or knife, but we're talking about a shield of protection all around the believer. Interestingly enough, Satan himself knows this. He mentions this protection that God provides to the faithful in Job, going back to Job in 110, where he says, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? God recognizes the protection that God has given, um, that the God has given to Job. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. So God is described as a shield. God is also described as David's glory. You see, despite all the riches and honor that David had accumulated over his years as king, and even more we see in his son Solomon, despite the many military victories he had achieved over all the surrounding nations, David sees the Lord as his glory. He doesn't take glory in these other things. I'm reminded of the prophet Jeremiah, how he says, let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows the Lord. That is what our boast is. And finally, the psalmist calls the Lord the lifter of his head. And I'm a member of the, again, going back to 1 Peter, I'm reminded of the instructions of the apostle Peter, who writes in his first epistle, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus himself taught us in Matthew's gospel that whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So to the humble like David was here when he knew his situation was desperate, he humbled himself, he cast himself upon upon the mercy of God that the Lord would be the lifter of his head. As he is recalling this past deliverance of God, he says in verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. You see, one of the results of trusting in the Lord despite these desperate, dire circumstances that David found himself in was that David was able to sleep in peace. Now, sleep at this particular time in the rebellion of Absalom would have been very helpful Considering the king and his loyal soldiers, the little ones, the families had just made the flight of their lives. And I'm not talking about a Delta flight to Tampa with a little turbulence here. We're talking about a, the flight of their lives. They were, speed was of the essence to avoid being slaughtered by the pursuing forces of Absalom, who would like nothing else than to kill the king and establish his own reign. Even with many thousands of people who have set themselves against David, he will not be afraid for the Lord is with him. Sleep is the benefit that God has given for the good of his people. As it says in Psalm 127, 2, he gives his beloved sleep. I used to ignore that verse and say, I'll sleep when I'm dead. But the older I get, the more I come to appreciate sleep and peace and being able to sleep peacefully in confidence despite the many trials of life. I remember once seeing a cover of Time magazine, maybe it was Newsweek, where it said 70 million Americans suffer sleep problems. Um, And I was rather shocked at such a high number. I'd never experienced such issues myself. That was before I had teenagers. (laughs) Can some of you all relate? But you see, there's a correlation between anxiety, stress, depression, other mental afflictions, and the incidence of sleep disorders, being able to get a good night's sleep. 
Hence, we have the introspective questions sometimes people will ask um, in self-help workshops. What's keeping you up at night? So I'm not promising any easy cures here in the sermon for insomnia. Um, But I know that cultivating a deep trust in the Lord, as David did over the course of his lifetime, this was not just a one-time prayer, but this is something that he had cultivated over the course of his life, as he's described as a man after God's own heart, that that's the beginning of the path to handling anxiety and distress in our lives. And as we, we, we recall the past episodes of God's faithfulness and goodness in our lives, we can begin to increase in our faith that he is once again able to sustain us no matter what trial comes. For as Psalm 30 says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Well, we've considered the desperate situation that the psalmist found himself and the recollection of God's past deliverance. Finally, I want you to see the prayer of the psalmist in these closing verses in verses 7 through 8 of the psalm, where he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. It's not a long prayer, is it? It's actually a pretty short prayer. But it's a significant one that comes from deep in the heart of of this suffering servant of the Lord, David. And in the mind of the Israelites, this would would have evoked memories of their history when they were in the wilderness wandering from Sinai after after the Lord had shown such grace and delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They also received a tangible sign of God's continued presence with them from day to day. And that That was the cloud which followed them by day and the fire that followed them by night. They had a a visible theophany, a presence of the Lord with them. But the Lord also gave them the Ark of the Covenant that served as a sort of throne for the Lord, where the Lord God would speak to Moses and rule over his people Israel. He is said in some of the Psalms to be enthroned above the cherubim. And that's referring to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Numbers 10 tells us that the Ark of the Covenant went before the people when they set out on their journeys, symbolizing that God was out in front of his people leading his armies. Numbers 10.35 says that whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. See, that's exactly what David's praying here in verse 7, isn't it? Arise, O Lord. Just was in the, just as in the time of the wilderness wanderings, the ark went forth. David is asking, Arise, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. Now, it's interesting to note that when David flees Jerusalem, does he take the ark with him? Is the ark out before the armies of David as they're confronting Absalom's surrounding host? No, he actually leaves the ark in Jerusalem because he has confidence that he will return to Jerusalem. David knows that God's presence and help is not limited to this important symbol. His son Solomon, at the dedication of the temple sometime in the future in 1 Kings, he will pray that the heaven and the highest of heaven cannot contain him. So David knows that God's presence is not contained solely within this Ark of the Covenant. 
that the Lord God omnipotent reigns and can come to the aid of his people wherever. So he diligently asked the Lord to arise and scatter his enemies and save him from death and danger. So to you, I say, take heart, people of God, for the Lord will, does strike his and our enemies on the cheek. He humiliates them. The Lord breaks the teeth of the wicked, rendering them harmless. So the one to whom we cry out for deliverance is none other than the Lord of hosts. And this brings us to Christmas, what we have celebrated just now. You see, the child of Bethlehem, the baby lying in a manger, is none other than the captain of the host, the armies of the Lord that appeared, appeared to Joshua before the conquest of Canaan. The word of God has taken on flesh and become man. And if this psalm is meant to serve as a portraying David as kind of a model of what the faithful trusting in the Lord during dire circumstances is, what that looks like, even in desperate times, how much more could that be said of the greater David, Jesus Christ our Lord? How many were his foes? Even after he was born, Herod massacred the innocent babies to try to destroy the Messiah who might take his throne. He was a man of sorrows, the prophets describe him as, acquainted with grief. He encountered the opposition of demons in his earthly ministry who were tormenting people. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers took counsel together, even Pilate and Herod, against the Lord's anointed and they plotted his death. They put him to death on a cross. And behind it all was Satan, that old adversary, operating through Judas, to betray the Son of God. Onlookers mocked him as he was on the cross and said that there was salvation, no salvation for him and God. He trusted in God, let him deliver him. They mocked at him when he was on the cross. Like the lion, Aslan, on the stone table, the countless hordes of hell fiendishly gathered around the cross and celebrated his death. They thought they had won a victory. And yet, like the psalmist here in verse 5, he committed his spirit into the hands of the one who had the power of death, his Father in heaven. He lay down and he slept the sleep of death. But in three days he awoke, for the Lord sustained him and would not allow the Holy One of God to see corruption. Like the scene in The Dark Knight Rises when Batman hears the chance of rise, and ascends out of the pit. Jesus Christ hears the prayers of his people, Arise, O Lord, and he triumphs over the grave. By death he conquers death and sin, and he brings salvation that is requested, Save me, O God. He brings salvation to the people of God. He has ascended to heaven and taken his rightful place on the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is presently making his enemies a footstool for his feet. You see, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that baby, through what he accomplished, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he has won a decisive victory, and the enemies are now in retreat. But on their retreat, I warn you that they are seeking to take down as many as they can. They are seeking to destroy and bring misery to as many as possible. 
So Christians, we must continue to pray Psalm 3. As the enemy rages against us, our first weapon in spiritual warfare in this life must be prayer. And there's a lot more that I could say about spiritual warfare, but you'll have to uh, examine Ephesians 6. That might be some good reading for this afternoon. But I would just encourage us that prayer must be our first weapon in spiritual warfare against these enemies, that God would arise, that he would scatter the foes, that he would deliver us from our enemies. And no matter what tribulations that we experience, the faithful will remind themselves of this creed in verse 8, that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is God and his sovereignty who has the prerogative to grant salvation. He may desire to deliver us from anxiety, heal us from sickness, deliver us from tribulation, or he may desire to refine us as gold in the fire of suffering so that we may become more like Jesus, his son. But whatever he decides, however he answers our prayer, he will sustain us until the end. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, so some of this may be strange, this, this is not, you're not able to relate to this, I would invite you to speak with me or one of the elders up front after the service so you can learn more about following Jesus. If you are weary with many burdens and many much suffering in life, Christ has invited you to come unto him and find rest for your soul. He offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to those who trust and follow him. So I'd end and close with the words, of the psalmist and pray that the blessing of Almighty God may be upon his people. Let us pray. O oh Lord, how many are our foes? Many rise against us. We feel this day by day. We feel the pressures of this life. Um, we recognize that in this world, as Jesus said, we will have tribulation. But we cast now our confidence upon you, and we ask that you to help us to build our faith and confidence day by day as we see you at work, that we may lay down and sleep, that we may wake again saying that the Lord has sustained us against these enemies. We pray that you would arise, O Lord, and save us, O God. You save us from the penalty of sin. You save us from the power of sin. You will one day save us from the very presence of God in the celestial city, the very, pre very presence of sin. Deliver us, O Lord, and give your blessing and salvation to your people and give them the grace to persevere in the Christian life, that we may be, bring honor and glory to your name. Amen.